welcome to Chip Chat, an interview series that connects you with technology experts around the issues that industry is focused on today. And now your host, Allison Klein. And we are back live for our last live cast of the day from the Intel Developer Forum. I am Allison Klein, and I'm joined by Paul Miller, founder of the Cloud of Data. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Allison. Good to be here. Paul, I've, I've seen you all over San Francisco, it seems, uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, why don't you start just by introducing yourself and, and telling the audience about what the Cloud of Data is? Okay, will do. Um, yes, my name is Paul Miller. I'm a, an analyst and consultant at the Cloud of Data based in the UK. Uh, consulting with a range of clients, really around sort of cloud computing and big data type challenges, helping them to understand what the problems are, what some of the opportunities are, um, and sometimes actually telling them they're maybe not ready for any of it. <laughs> so, we've been talking for the last few years about cloud computing and the emergence of cloud in, in, in the enterprise in particular. I mean, I, we know that some of the large data centers the Amazons and Googles of the world have this stuff figured out. That's how they've made their central value proposition. Can you talk a little bit about where you see the enterprise in terms of adoption of cloud and how that philosophy in terms of where they're aiming has changed over the last year? I think you know, there's a growing recognition that cloud has to be part of the enterprise computing story. I doubt there are many people who would disagree with that. Um, there's a real tension which has continued for longer than I thought it would in terms of people trying to get the balance right between private and public. You know, on, on some levels, there's things like the Snowden hysteria, essentially, where, which people are using not to move to public cloud. On other levels, there are very real um, business or financial reasons to do things in other ways, either in a private cloud or in some other, some other form. Um, you only have to look at companies like Zynga, say, who started off doing everything in Amazon and recognized that once they were at a steady state computing load, it was more cost effective to pull stuff back in-house. Um, and a lot of other organizations are facing those concerns and those challenges too. When you look at the types of workloads that are being moved into public cloud services, what are the underlying attributes of those applications that make enterprises comfortable to send them to a service provider? Um, I think a lot of that will depend upon the organization and perhaps where they are in the world as well. Realistically, there isn't a workload that couldn't run in a public cloud. So people are trying to reassure themselves around things like security, but also around things like data gravity. You know, the, the, the challenge of moving large volumes of data either into the cloud or out of the cloud, um, both of which create real problems. You know, there's Amazon and others, for example, still allow people to FedEx them disks because it's the, the quickest, cheapest way to get very large volumes of data into a cloud data center. So when you take a look at what people are doing within their own con data center environments, how far away are we from enterprises actually running the types of self-controlled services that um, users can go request a service and it's automatically provisioned for them in seconds. We're seeing some examples of that. You know, there are, there are clearly organizations who are, who are further ahead and are doing that either for particular subsets of a, of a set of IT capabilities or even doing it across the piece. You know, some of the genomics companies, for example, were very early in Amazon mm -hmm. um, doing that sort of thing and then beginning to pull some of that back into private clouds, which could be self-provisioned. And mm -hmm. we, we've been talking a lot at this event so far 
around you know, software defined everything. So software defined networking, software defined compute, software defined storage. And increasingly it's about how you orchestrate those pieces together to, in, to enable exactly what you were talking about, customer deployment of things on demand in a way that's cost effective and, and sustainable. I uh, saw you at the Intel Xeon launch yesterday and you know, while you never want to say the, the delivery of yet another complex platform like a Xeon processor is something to be expected, um, we are getting fairly good at our beat rate of, of processor delivery. But there were some interesting things that came out of that launch. Were there any interesting topics that you heard in the launch that uh, surprised you? Um, not surprised so much, but I thought it was interesting, you know, the, the emphasis on um, diagnostics and being able to report sort of capabilities back from, from the chip directly. And looking then downstream at the way that you begin to integrate that sort of reporting into an application that's, ru that's running workloads across you know, a suite of those, those servers. Mm -hmm. I must admit, I did tweet at the event, has anyone ever announced a new product which isn't faster, cheaper, <laughs> and all the rest of it? So yes, you, you do kind of expect this rate of innovation, but it is still interesting to, to see it coming and to see what people can, can begin to do with it. You should be delivering new, fi shiny, faster, cheaper products, but... Well, I think you that are. somebody must have done that at some point, but they didn't stay in business for very long. Uh, you do bring up a good point in terms of the diagnostics and telemetry that we're building into our platforms and how that will connect very closely with orchestration software to ensure that not only are, you know, if there's a problem that we are aware of it, but also that the orchestration software is actually deploying on the right hardware to match the workload. That's kind of a critical piece. Yeah, and it's not just about problem detection, is it? It's, it's about optimizing the use of those workloads. So being able to measure um, utilization rates and, and to therefore increase those utilization rates and therefore save money. When you, when you take a look, I'm going to go back for a second. Um, you mentioned the genomics field and, and folks who are working in that space. A lot of talk about genomics um, in the keynote this morning from Diane Bryant, talking about a prediction that by 2020, we'll be able to sequence a, a genome and analyze it against uh, DNA profiles and come up with a treatment within a day, assuming that that drug exists, of course. When you take a look at that, and I know that you work with folks in the genomics field, where do you think we're at and what, what kind of breakthroughs in terms of uh, medic medical um, are you seeing in this space? What is the convergence between technology and medical research? I think that there are a huge set of opportunities. You know, one of the um, be, being able to tailor treatments directly to an individual and, and particular um, flags in, the, in their own genome is hugely exciting. Um, but also on a social level, you know, it's not just about medicine and technology; it's about society too, and mm -hmm. it's how we begin to reassure people about what, what this actually means. You know, if I can get my genome sequenced in 24 hours, that may help me if I'm ill. Might it also mean I can't get insured because I have the potential to get ill? And that, that's clearly a worry. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be as dystopian as some suggest, but mm -hmm. we do need to work through these issues and work out how we engage people and bring them along in realizing the benefits and the value that, that technology and medicine can provide and also putting the safeguards in place to ensure that that information isn't abused. So it sounds like uh, privacy in your health data has jumped exponentially in terms of importance. It has, but it, it's not just about privacy, it's about 
expectations and norms for use. You know, we, we could put all the privacy safeguards we like in place, but if my employer comes to me and says, you know, I need to see your health records for whatever reason, you know, tenure or um, maternity leave or paternity leave or whatever it is, that, that's, that's a real issue. And it's not about the privacy legislation, it's about social norms. When you talk about where folks are keeping their data, you, you gave the example of FedExing to Amazon, and, and lots of people talk about that. What kind of sophistication is going into, okay, I've got this, you know, this pool of data in, that, that I'm accessing from the public sphere. It's sitting out here. I've got some private data. I'm going to do analytics at the place that the data resides. I think we're still struggling with that. Um, there's... There's a perception, perhaps, that people are treating data as, as all of all one um, and applying the protections and the safeguards either to, to the least sensitive, which would be a, a bad thing, um, or applying safeguards across the piece to the most sensitive data, which is also equally worrying. Um, and we need to get much better at being able to segment data and assign value and protection according to you know the value or the security of a particular fact of a particular data point. When you are writing, uh, you've referred to something called the personal data locker. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, th th this is an interesting idea, um, which is, is gaining some traction. It's been talked about for years, but it, it does seem to be gaining traction at the moment. And it's this idea, essentially, that there should be a trusted place where personal data can be put. Um, for a while, it was suggested that things like your bank might be the obvious place, but we don't trust banks anymore, mm -hmm. so that's not <laughs> going to happen. Um, we used to trust them. Um, but th this idea, essentially, that all these authentication challenges you get, you know, if you go and apply for a loan or a mortgage or, or whatever it may be, or you go and hire a, rent a car, you know, you land at SFO, you want to drive up to San Francisco, you go to rent a car, and they ask to see, you know, your, your date of birth and your driving license. Mm -hmm. Actually, all they need to know is that you have a driving license, that it's valid, and that you're old enough to drive. They don't need your date of birth. So they, they only need that sort of positive response coming back to say, right. yes, you're old enough. Um, and so one of, the, one of the values of a personal data locker is that you begin to, to set up a system where those sort of checks and balances can be put in place. So the rental company asks your personal data locker, does Alison have a driving license and is she old enough to drive? And the response simply comes back, yes. Your right. date of birth never crosses the wire, which is more secure. So I can imagine a myriad of examples where your personal data is not used but confirmed. Exactly, yes. And you don't get a bunch of birthday cards from random people. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that that's a fantastic idea. Have you seen anybody actually put it into practice? We're seeing some startups in this space, um, and there's also the, the UK government has a project called My Data, which is beginning to, to look at how mm -hmm. some, you know, um, essentially public sector information might be used in that way. It's at an early stage at the moment, but there's, there's growing interest. When you talk to enterprises, you said something very interesting at the top of the interview. Sometimes you tell people, yeah, you probably don't want to do this right now. What are the characteristics that you're looking for that you know that this is the right client to move ahead with next generation technology and when are the when are the times that you put the brakes on? I think it, it's around attitude to risk, it's around awareness, um, alignment with what their business is actually trying to do as well. You know, 
Um, too often, perhaps, you'll get the CEO who's been playing golf with their friends and their friends have all got a cloud. So they come into the business and say, I want a cloud too. Um, <laughs> And then you find out that the organization is one where, you know, you're not allowed to check your company email on a personal device. Right. Uh, and all that sort of thing. If, if you can't even check your email on a personal device, is you, the company's attitude to risk one that, that is sort of sensible for moving wholesale to the cloud? And th- those sorts of signals are, are usually quite a good indicator. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you take a look at that, there may be eight things that they need to do before they even start thinking about this. And do you shift the conversation to those things? Uh, if, if they want the conversation shifted that way, I mean, sometimes you will say, you know, you, you're not ready for this. Uh, here are some pilots you might like to look at down the line when your attitude has shifted a bit. Um, but, and, and actually, you know, clients are, are often surprised. They expect a consultant or an analyst to go in and sell them a solution. Right. And you're saying, you're not ready to buy a solution yet, go away. Um, and that's... <laughs> It's not the way to get rich, but it is the way to be honest. That, that is true. I know that you have been writing about some topics, including containers. Can you tell us about containers, what they are, and, and why they're different than what we do today? Containers. Um, if you look in the tech press, containers are the answer to every problem that's ever been invented, and VMware is finished. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're neither, the, the neither open of, stack of 2014. Yes, neither of those is true. Um, containers have been around for a long time. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of enthusiasm around Docker at the moment, which is sort of one example of a, a containerization approach. But the broader ideas are much older. And essentially, with a traditional VM, a traditional virtual machine, you move the operating system and the application. So if you want to run a web server or a word processor, you send Windows or Linux along with it every time, which clearly you know, raises some challenges in terms of the, the amount of data you have to move just to get an application into place. With a container, the, the operating system doesn't move, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it sits underneath and the containers then sit on top, which makes them much more lightweight, much more agile, um, and much more optimized to sort of a, a web-based way of working. So there's a lot of interest. Um, Google, of course, is saying this is the way we've been doing it since we started. You know, right. This is the Google way of computing. Um, come on, all you people. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And indeed, there's a, there's a session on certain containers and the Intel view on that later today, which I'm hoping to sit in on. Yeah, I think it's at 4 o'clock. I won't be able to make it, but um, I think that uh, there's been a lot of interest in that and to hear what Intel has to say about containers. Um, containers in the enterprise... Are, are we seeing that this is something that the enterprise will use, or is this still in the uh, public cloud space in terms of uh, utilization today? I think that there are some clear opportunities for the enterprise, um, especially for you know web-style modern applications. Um, there are some challenges still to address, so things like maintaining uh, data state across containers doesn't work very well. So you've got companies like Flocker coming along trying to address exactly that. Um, for more traditional legacy applications, a virtual machine or even you know, bare metal installation remains almost the only sensible way to do it. So there's a role for containers in the enterprise, but they're not going to replace their VMs tomorrow. Paul, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn something new. Um, I'll just uh, end the interview with asking where people can connect with you uh, to continue this conversation. Will do. So it's uh, cloudofdata.com on the web. 
or at Paul Miller, nice and easy, on Twitter. Well, Paul Miller, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you, Alison. Visit ChipChat online at intel.com slash chipchat. And for more information on data center technologies, visit intel.com slash bigdata, intel.com slash cloud, and intel.com slash data center optimization. 